Our reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, verses 26 through 39, and I'm reading from the Common English Bible Translation. Jesus and his disciples sailed to the Gerasenes' land, which is across the lake from Galilee. As soon as Jesus got out of the boat, a certain man met him. The man was from the city and was possessed by demons. For a long time, he had lived among the tombs, naked and homeless. When he saw Jesus, he shrieked and fell down before him. And then he shouted, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I beg you, don't torture me. He said this because Jesus had already commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had taken possession of him, so he would be bound with leg irons and chains and placed under guard. But he would break his restraints, and the demon would force him into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had entered him. They pleaded with him not to order them to go back to the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs. Jesus gave them permission, and the demons left the man and entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the cliff into the lake and drowned. When those who tended the pigs saw what happened, they ran away and told the story in the city and in the countryside. People came to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone. He was sitting at Jesus' feet, fully dressed and completely sane. They were filled with awe. Those people who had actually seen what had happened told them how the demon-possessed man had been delivered. Then everyone gathered from the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave their area because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and returned across the lake. The man from whom the demons had gone begged to come along with Jesus as one of his disciples. Jesus sent him away, saying, "'Return home.'" And tell the story of what God has done for you. So he went throughout the city, proclaiming what Jesus had done for him. The Word of God in Scripture. The Word of God within us. The Word of God among us. Thanks be to God. You know what drives me crazy? Like you, my family's getting a lot of packages delivered to the house right now. It seems like everything shows up in a cardboard box these days. And um, occasionally, we'll get that package that says across in big letters, what? It says, handle with care, fragile inside. And, and sometimes you'll get that box on your porch, and it looks like the delivery driver drop-kicked it onto your front porch. I mean, there are uh, dents and gashes and, and, and rips all over the box. You're thinking, you could not have handled this with less care. And there are the words right there. And inside this, something that's probably valuable, uh, or at least of, of sentimental value, is broken. It can leave a mess in its wake. Uh, there's just damage and glass and who knows what else. Now, in, this, in the Bible, there are scriptures that it's almost as though there are big words that say, handle with care as they are handed to us. There are stories that um, if we don't hold them the right way, if we're not careful in, in how they are handled, um, it can lead to damage, it can lead to brokenness, it can lead to serious pain in the lives of those who hear them handled without care. 
This is one of the stories, the story that you just heard read, the story of Jesus casting out a demon in the land of Gerasa, the story that we call sometimes the Gerasene demoniac. You know, casting out demons, it, it elicits a lot, I'm sure, for us of, of pop cultural references, maybe a movie or a TV show that you like or are terrified of. In the church, these are stories that historically have not always been handled with the utmost of care. In fact, they've led to a lot of pain and suffering as a result. I think about the, the message I got from a friend who lives out of state uh, a couple of years ago. And, he, and he's got a friend um, who lives in the area in DFW, and she and her daughter were going to a church. Her daughter is a teenager and was in youth group at the time and was struggling with depression. And, uh, you know, this hits home for me because I, I, I also su suffer from depression. And uh, she was opening up about this in her youth ministry. And, and the youth pastor at this church told her that the reason she had depression was because she had a demon. And if only she loved Jesus enough, then Jesus would conquer the demon that was within her. Now, it takes a lot for me to get like viscerally, physically angry, but in that moment, my face, was, I'm sure, was beet red because I could only imagine the kind of damaging thoughts that must have been racing through that child's head. And so my friend had reached out to me to try to get her and her daughter into a, a better church, which I was more than happy to do, a place where she wasn't going to hear that kind of harmful theology. Because the reality is, so many of us battle demons in the figurative sense, right? Not the literal sense, but in the figurative sense. You know, maybe we're talking about mental illness. Uh, maybe we're talking about addiction. I, I use the term recovery to mean very broadly uh, those, uh, in Celebrate Recovery, we refer to it as the hurts, habits, and hang-ups that, that prevent us from better health, right? Mental illness, uh, addiction, other forms of recovery, the things in our life that trip us up and those, and those traumas that can trip us up in, as well. I believe that just like that, that box that says handle with care, though, inside this story is, uh, is something invaluable. There's a lot of power to be had here when we understand it correctly, when, when we take this text and treat it with the care that it deserves, and we see the kind of actions that Jesus is about before an exorcism ever actually takes place. We're, we're in this series called Searching for a Miracle, where we are looking at stories like this, some of the miracle stories of Jesus, and we're taking a second look, a closer look. And considering how these are stories that are not meant to just be bound within the pages of our Bibles, but, but instead are meant to be expressed and experienced in our own lives. And so before Jesus ever gets to the place of, of exercising a demon, he does three really intentional things that I want to point out, point out and uplift this morning that I believe we can do in our lives um, to see this miracle come to life today. So let's talk about casting out demons this Sunday. Now, prior to the story that takes place here in Luke chapter 8, that's where we are, Luke chapter 8, if you'd like to follow along. If you're watching online right now, there's a Bible tab that you can click and you can read along with us. Today, we're working with the Common English Bible Translation. Just before the story in Luke chapter 8, uh, Jesus is on the other side of what our text calls the lake. This is the Sea of Galilee, and last week we talked about how the Sea of Galilee is really just a large lake. Uh, that's a more accurate term for it. And he, he begins the chapter on the Jewish side of the lake, and then he sails across to Gerasa, the place where this man uh, that he meets lives. And Gerasa is a Gentile territory. It is a non-Jewish land. So he sails across the, the 
Sea of Galilee. And while he's sailing is when we experience that famous stilling of the storm story. It's where Jesus and the disciples are in a boat, and uh, Jesus is asleep in the boat, and all of a sudden a great storm takes over, and the disciples are terrified, and they wake him up, and then he kind of chastises them and reminds them of how little faith they have. You know, it's a classic thing that Jesus does with his disciples. Then he calms the storm, and they go on their way. So they land in Gerasa. He meets this man. We see the story that just was read for us where he exercises this demon. And then he gets back on his boat. Did you notice at the end of the story, he gets back on the boat and heads right back across the lake. I, I mean, I, I realize it's kind of a simple point, but it's one that maybe we miss and, and we shouldn't, right? Jesus stops, pauses his ministry in, in this land that is his home with people that are his and that culture that understands who he is. And, and, and he goes across the lake encounters a life-threatening storm, all, the, all just to make it to Gerasa for one man to perform one healing miracle, then he doesn't do any teaching, no more miracles, no more healings, no nothing, no ministry in Gerasa other than just this one moment, gets back on his boat and goes back across the lake. Now, I point this out because I think it's the first actual part of this miracle that we ought not miss, that Jesus stops and crosses the sea. It's this kind of extravagant miracle that Jesus goes out of his way and endures this life-threatening storm just to liberate this one man. He crosses the sea. In our lives, what that looks like is this. It's when we go out of our way when the Spirit leads us. We cross the sea when we go out of the way the Spirit leads us. Now, maybe this sounds like a big grand gesture to you to cross the sea for someone that you love or care for, but I don't want you to let the size intimidate you. Because, I mean, as Christians, yes, extravagant love should be one of our calling cards, but it can be a lot simpler than crossing the sea. I think about it in this way. Sometimes a name crosses my mind for no apparent reason, and maybe it's just something that happens. Maybe it's the synapses in my brain firing in a weird way. But maybe it's the Spirit nudging me in a direction saying, would you reach out? Would you check on them? Would you see how they're doing? And I've had too many of those nudges. Actually, Reagan, my wife, is the one who taught me to, to listen for these nudges. You know, I've had too many of these nudges turn into meaningful conversations in my life, the, the kind of conversation that someone needed precisely at that moment, not because I had anything profound to say, but because I simply reached out to check on them. I've learned to trust in those nudges. I've been on the receiving end. Have you, have you been in that moment when you were at a, at a low point or, or something in your life was happening and you just felt like you needed somebody even though you couldn't reach out and, and ask for it, and all of a sudden that name shows up on your phone, a name that, that you hadn't anticipated or maybe one that you hoped you would see, and, and that was the conversation, that was the moment that you needed just in that time. You know, I've learned to listen that when the Spirit nudges me in a different direction, takes me across a border, across a boundary, into unknown territory to go see just for one person, just to check, even if it's an in inconvenience, when, they, when the Spirit places that name upon my heart, maybe even tells me to sail across the sea for the sake of someone I love, I, I've learned to try and listen as best I can. And I'm not perfect about that. There are nudges that I let go, and I wish I didn't. But I'm learning to trust that nudge more and more every day. Because I think one thing that's important to remember and why crossing the sea can be so critical is that even though in this story the man is easily recognizable, right? The community knows who he is. They know that he needs help. They don't know how to help him, but uh, he's, he's, he's hard to miss, right? And we'll talk about that in a second. Um, 
in real life, people who are battling figurative demons frequently don't appear to be, right? Depression wears a smile. Addiction can be very high-functioning. And those hurts, habits, and hang-ups, even though they get in the way of us on a deep personal level, sometimes we're really good at masking that over. So maybe the Spirit's nudge to send us across the sea, to go out of our way as the Spirit nudges us, maybe that's something that we can tune into more to check in on that person who may never otherwise ask for help. Because if we think that people are always going to ask for help, we'd be wrong. Second thing I see Jesus doing in the story before the demon is ever cast out is uh, it all has to do with the Jewish customs of cleanliness. So the Jewish religion, like many ancient religions in this time, um, had a lot of rules and regulations around cleanliness. Now, some of this can be understood because culturally, um, they didn't have the same kind of scientific understanding we do today. And so take, for instance, the, the Jewish practice of not consuming pork. Right? That's why the, demon, the demons are sent into pigs, because in the Jewish tradition, the pigs were seen as very unclean animals. Now, that could be because nowadays we know that pork is an interesting meat. You have to cook it at an internal temperature of 145 long enough to kill off all the bacteria so that it doesn't cause any diseases that pork is prone to cause. So, did the Jewish tradition outlaw pork? Because honestly, as a society, it was better just to stay away from it because it was more likely to make you sick. Perhaps. But the Jewish tradition was one of, of valuing cleanliness. You, you couldn't go into the temple and be about the kinds of rituals and rites that you needed to be about in that religion unless you were someone who carried yourself in a clean way. You avoided the right types of animals. You avoided the right types of places. You avoided the right types of people, right? And, and Jesus is a rabbi. He's a teacher of these disciples. And rabbis especially were not supposed to be in the wrong places with the wrong people at the wrong times. And now let's really paint the picture of who meets Jesus when he arrives at this shore. It's a man, but it's not just a man. He, he is naked. He's been unhoused for who knows how long. He's been living in the tombs where the bodies of the deceased are kept surrounded by rot, out of his mind, aggressive because he's been breaking the chains the community had tried to bind him in. Can you imagine the senses that overwhelmed Jesus, the the stench that this man had been living in. This was not the kind of person or a place that a good rabbi, a respectable rabbi was meant to be around. This is the last person that someone like Jesus should want to meet. But rather than brush past him in search of a cleaner, more comfortable audience, some people that look like they belong in the temple, right? Jesus instead chooses to receive this man out of love. Simply put, Jesus chooses the tomb over the temple. Choosing the tomb over the temple means uh, to risk unclean and uncomfortable conversations out of love. That's what it looks like in our lives today. And as a resurrection people, don't we know that tombs are frequently where the most powerful and important work can take place in our lives? This community had tried to restrain this man time and time again, but he'd always broken free isn't it true that we always uh, would prefer to have something that we can easily control, especially when we're talking about the tougher stuff of life? We, we want things that are on our terms, handled in our own way. Sometimes, my friends, we simply have to sit in the mess and accept the discomfort that comes from difficult moments and hard conversations with those whom we love. 
I was in a small group one time with a, with a friend who um, we were sharing uh, kind of life stories as a part of this small group. This wasn't a recovery small group, but um, that was part of his life story. He uh, was in recovery for meth addiction. And uh, in his own words, he said, I was a very high-functioning addict, right? Now, I know we try to use language today around suffering from addiction and things like that, but he referred to himself as, I was a high-functioning addict. He didn't look like what you might assume someone who's addicted to meth would look or act like. Um, he was very successful in his line of work. He was sociable. He had lots of friends. Nobody from the outside looking in would have known any better. But of course, over time, the addiction began to get the better of him. And uh, a few of those warning signs began to pop up for uh, his boss, who was also a friend of his and who loved him dearly. His boss realized that something was off. And so he confronted him one day in the office, and he called him into his office, and he sat him down, and he said, we need to talk because I can tell that something's not right. I don't know what's going on, but I, I need you to trust me in this moment, um, and I need you to open up to me about what's going on. And in that moment, his boss was risking a lot. He was risking his friendship. He was risking the professional relationship. He was risking creating and causing a scene. He was risking offending his friend. I mean, there was so much at risk in that moment, and yet that was the moment that allowed my friend to finally say, you're right, I'm not okay. Now, I don't want to pretend like a single conversation can fix everything. Of course it can't. And not every conversation has a happy ending. That's why it's a risk to have unclean and uncomfortable conversations out of love in our lives. But in my own experience and in the experience of those who I've been in relationship with through ministry and through friendship, I know that so frequently, in fact, I'd be hard-pressed to find a path to recovery that doesn't include an unclean, uncomfortable conversation at some point early on. And so as those who would seek to follow after Jesus, as those who would seek to cast out the figurative demons in our lives and the lives of those whom we love, choosing the tomb over the temple is a critical piece of that risking unclean and uncomfortable conversations out of love. The last thing that Jesus does before expressing power over this demon in the story, or these demons rather, is he, he asks the name of the demons. Now, this is important in the theology of exorcism. And just to be clear, in the Methodist church, that's not a part of our doctrine. Pastor Scott is not going to exorcise demons for you, uh, but I am going to explain the historical understanding, the theological understanding as to why this moment was important. Uh, if you've watched any movies or TV shows about demon possession, you're probably familiar with this understanding that when you know the name of the demon, it grants the, the exorcist power over that demon. So that's one reason why this is included, but it's the name that the demons give Jesus that's even more important. Jesus says, what is your name? And the demons say, legion. And that name works on two different levels. On the personal front, it means that this, this man is not suffering just from one thing in particular. He is, he is home to a host of demons that are unnamed. We are many. We are legion. And so on a personal level, it allows him to be kind of a placeholder for us or anyone who we know and love that is suffering in some way. Because we can immediately relate because it's not drawn too specifically in one particular way here. He is, he is home to a host of demons. He is home to legion. 
And so we can see, we can see our own mental illness or our own addiction or our, our own hurt, habit, hang-up, trauma, whatever it is. We can see that at work in the life of this man. It also works, though, on a larger community political justice level because uh, legion was the literal term for 6,000 Roman soldiers in those days. You know, this is back in the time of the Roman Empire as they were occupying a number of territories throughout the Mediterranean, including Israel and also Gerasa, where Jesus is currently. And so when the man says, I am, I, when the demons say, we are legion, the man is possessed by a legion, um, the people in those days would have understood what was really being said. This man is also us. This man is the oppressed people. This man is Israel, and legion is oppressing him. Knowing the name grants you power over your oppressor. For the story at the time would have been a tool of resistance for early Christians by naming this iconic demon after the Roman occupation. It's also a tool of resistance for anyone who hears this story because we can see ourselves and our loved ones in the place of the possessed man. Knowing the name grants you power over your oppressor. The last thing Jesus does is he asks the name. When we ask the name of those whom we love or when we name out loud that which oppresses us, it grants power. There's a power that is granted that comes with naming our oppressors. Simply saying out loud what is pressing us, crushing us, persecuting us. It grants us a power. Again, does it fix everything? No, but there's immense power that comes in that moment. When we're given permission to say out loud, I have a problem. I'm not okay. I'm depressed. I'm anxious. I'm suffering from addiction. I'm not sure what's going on, but I know I need help. Even when we don't have the precise language to put around it, there's something empowering about simply saying the name out loud. It may not allow us to command the demons in the way that, or command our demons in the way that Jesus does, but it could be the catalyst that we need to set us on a path of recovery and a path of healing. Now, I want to say not only is this a miracle that we get to express for others in our lives, my prayer is it's a miracle that we could experience as well. I want to say a word about that. I, I try to be open in the pulpit as a pastor who uh, battles mental illness myself. I, I have uh, depression and at times anxiety. Uh, depression is something that I have uh, journeyed through since I was, I guess, probably around the eighth grade. And, and depression and I are old friends. And, and I've got a good way of handling that in a normal season. And sunshine and, and inviting friends over to dinner at the house when it's not a pandemic. And, um, you know, finding those quiet moments of joy with my family. Uh, several years ago, though, I experienced anxiety for the very first time, that tightness of the chest, that, that almost paralyzing feeling of dread where I couldn't even get out of bed. That, that was a new and different thing, and it, it put me in the office of a, of a psychiatrist for the first time in my life, and, and she prescribed me sertraline, or Zoloft, as it's better known, and, and I took those medications for about a year while that season improved, and then when we both felt good, I, I decided that the medication was time to stop, and never since then, I've, I've been managing things well. And then this time last year, you know, yesterday was my birthday. And last year, my birthday was one of the very last things that I got to enjoy before the pandemic hit. I took Andy to go see the movie Onward at Alamo Drafthouse. Yesterday was, the, was my birthday, and it got me thinking about 12 long months of this season. 
And I don't know about you, but of course at first, you know, things were kind of different and fun. We hung out in the front yard a lot and watched too many movies and uh, tried to pretend like we were going to do crafts every day with our kids. And then as the months wore on, um, I know that many of us have felt like we've had this slow grind just grinding us down. And then after about six months or so, Reagan noticed something was different about me, and she crossed the sea, and she chose to risk an unclean and uncomfortable conversation. She said, Scott, I see that you're kind of checking out a bit more in the house. I noticed that you'll just sort of stop walking and and space out, or um, you're taking longer to get out of bed in the morning. Is, Is everything okay? I'm just concerned. And then she allowed me to say the name. And I said, you know, I'm feeling that anxiety again. I'm feeling that tightness in the chest. I'm feeling that dread. And like, life is good. I'm, I'm enjoying this new appointment with these people called Arapaho, and I love my kids, and I love my family, and I don't know what's going on, but I just, I feel that anxiety. And she said, well, why don't you make an appointment with Dr. Webb? And I said, okay. So I did. And that was the catalyst for getting me back on on a path of recovery in a moment that I needed it. And so, uh, for several months now, I've been back on my sertraline. And I put these, I tell the story and I, and I show my pills on camera, not because I want a pity party for Pastor Scott, right? Um, I'm doing well. Uh, I share this because I want to create space, especially in a pulpit, especially in a church, to have these kinds of conversations. Because I know, unfortunately, the church has done a poor job of addressing the stigma related to mental health and medication for mental health over the last several decades. And so I try to be a part of of positive change in that area. And I know it's important because I got a text this past week from a friend saying, can you share the contact of your therapist with me? And, And he meets with pastors, right? I know it's important because there's more of us out here than we care to talk about. It's one of the best kept secrets in the room. And so I I share this with you. I share myself with you to say, if this is you, I do hope that you can reach out. I hope that someone can cross the sea for you, but I hope you'll find the courage to reach out and know that it does get better that I and the pastors and staff here at Arapaho are here for you. You can email me at scott at arapahoumc.org. You can call me at 817-319-3990. I want you to know that it can get better. I want you to know that this miracle can, can be experienced not just in the pages of the Bible, but in our own lives as well. My friends, when you see someone cross the sea for you in your life, when they enter your tomb, when they ask for your name and create that space and grant the power of naming, know that you are seen, know that you are loved, and know that you are in the midst of a miracle. We handle with care because there's power in the story. I pray that if you need healing and mercy and love in your life this day, that it could be made real for you. Amen.